Part Two, Sections Thirteen and Fourteen of Flatland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Flatland: A Romance of Many Dimensions by Edwin Abbott Abbott. Part Two, Other Worlds. O oh, brave new worlds that have such people in them. Section Thirteen. How I had a vision of Lineland. It was the last day but one of the nineteen hundred and ninety-ninth year of our era, and the first day of the long vacation. Having amused myself till a late hour with my favourite recreation of geometry, I had retired to rest with an unsolved problem in my mind. In the night I had a dream. Reader's Note The following paragraph makes reference to a diagram. The diagram is headed, My View of Lineland. Beneath this title, and centrally placed, is a square labelled Myself. Under that, from left to right on a horizontal plane, are four dots labelled Women, a short dash labelled A Boy, six longer dashes marked Men, then, directly below Myself, a thick dash labelled the king, with an eye looking out from either end. Under the eyes is written, The king's eyes much larger than the reality, showing that his majesty could see nothing but a point. The horizontal line then continues towards the right, with seven dashes marked men, one dash marked a boy, and seven dots marked women. End of reader's note. I saw before me a vast multitude of small straight lines, which I naturally assumed to be women, interspersed with other beings, still smaller, and of the nature of lustrous points, all moving to and fro in one and the same straight line, and, as nearly as I could judge, with the same velocity. A noise of confused, multitudinous chirping or twittering issued from them at intervals as long as they were moving but sometimes they ceased from motion, and then all was silence. Approaching one of the largest of what I thought to be women, I accosted her, but received no answer. A second and third appeal on my part were equally ineffectual. Losing patience at what appeared to me intolerable rudeness, I brought my mouth into a position full in front of her mouth, so as to intercept her motion, and loudly repeated my question. Woman, what signifies this concourse, and this strange and confused chirping, and this monotonous motion to and fro, in one and the same straight line? I am no woman, replied the small line. I am the monarch of the world. But thou, whence intrudest thou into my realm of Lineland? Receiving this abrupt reply, I begged pardon, if I had in any way startled or molested His Royal Highness, and, describing myself as a stranger, I besought the King to give me some account of his dominions. But I had the greatest possible difficulty in obtaining any information on points that really interested me, for the monarch could not refrain from constantly assuming that whatever was familiar to him must also be known to me and that I was simulating ignorance in jest. However, by persevering questions, I elicited the following facts. 
it seemed that this poor ignorant monarch, as he called himself, was persuaded that the straight line which he called his kingdom, and in which he passed his existence, constituted the whole of the world, and indeed the whole of space. Not being able either to move or to see, save in his straight line, he had no conception of anything out of it. Though he had heard my voice when I first addressed him, the sounds had come to him in a manner so contrary to his experience that he had made no answer, seeing no man, as he expressed it, and hearing a voice, as it were, from my own intestines. Until the moment when I placed my mouth in his world, he had neither seen me nor heard anything except confused sounds beating against what I called his side, but what he called his inside or stomach. Nor had he, even now, the least conception of the region from which I had come. Outside his world, or line, all was a blank to him. Nay, not even a blank, for a blank implies space. Say, rather, all was non-existent. His subjects, of whom the small lines were men, and the points women, were all alike confined in motion and eyesight to that single straight line, which was their world. It need scarcely be added that the whole of their horizon was limited to a point. Nor could any one ever see anything but a point. Man, woman, child, thing, each was a point to the eye of a Limelander. Only by the sound of the voice could sex or age be distinguished. Moreover, as each individual occupied the whole of the narrow path, so to speak, which constituted his universe, and no one could move to the right or left to make way for passers-by, it followed that no linelander could ever pass another. Once neighbours, always neighbours. Neighbourhood with them was like marriage with us. Neighbours remained neighbours till death did them part. Such a life, with all vision limited to a point, and all motion to a straight line, seemed to me inexpressibly dreary, and I was surprised to note the vivacity and cheerfulness of the king. Wondering whether it was possible, amid circumstances so unfavourable to domestic relations, to enjoy the pleasures of conjugal union, I hesitated for some time to question His Royal Highness on so delicate a subject. But at last I plunged into it by abruptly inquiring as to the health of his family. "'My wives and children,' he replied, "'are well and happy.' Staggered at this answer, for in the immediate proximity of the monarch, as I had noted in my dream before I entered Lineland, there were none but men. I ventured to reply, "'Pardon me, but I cannot imagine how your Royal Highness can at any time either see or approach their Majesties, when there are at least half a dozen intervening individuals whom you can neither see through nor pass by. Is it possible that, in Lineland, proximity is not necessary for marriage and for the generation of children?' "'How can you ask so absurd a question?' replied the monarch. "'If it were indeed as you suggest, the universe would soon be depopulated. 
No, no, neighbourhood is needless for the union of hearts, and the birth of children is too important a matter to have been allowed to depend on such an accident as proximity. You cannot be ignorant of this. Yet, since you are pleased to affect ignorance, I will instruct you as if you were the veriest baby in Lineland. Know, then, that marriages are consummated by means of the faculty of sound and the sense of hearing. You are, of course, aware that every man has two mouths or voices, as well as two eyes, a bass at one and a tenor at the other of his extremities. I should not mention this, but that I have been unable to distinguish your tenor in the course of our conversation. I replied that I had but one voice, and that I had not been aware that His Royal Highness had two. "'That confirms my impression,' said the King, "'that you are not a man, but a feminine monstrosity with a bass voice and an utterly uneducated ear. But to continue—' Nature herself having ordained that every man should wed two wives. Why two? asked I. You carry your affected simplicity too far, he cried. How can there be a completely harmonious union without the combination of the four in one? Viz the bass and tenor of the man, and the soprano and contralto of the two women. But supposing, said I, that a man should prefer one wife, or three. "'It is impossible,' he said. "'It is as inconceivable as that two and one should make five, or that the human eye should see a straight line.' I would have interrupted him, but he proceeded as follows. "'Once in the middle of each week a law of nature compels us to move to and fro with a rhythmic motion of more than usual violence, which continues for the time you would take to count a hundred and one. In the midst of this choral dance, at the fifty-first pulsation, the inhabitants of the universe pause in full career, and each individual sends forth his richest, fullest, sweetest strain. It is in this decisive moment that all our marriages are made. So exquisite is the adaptation of bass to treble, of tenor to contralto, that oftentimes the loved ones, though twenty thousand leagues away, recognise at once the responsive note of their destined lover, and penetrating the paltry obstacles of distance, love unites the three. The marriage in that instant consummated results in a threefold male and female offspring, which takes its place in Lineland. What? "'Always threefold,' said I. "'Must one wife, then, always have twins?' "'Base-voice monstrosity! Yes!' replied the king. "'How else could the balance of the sexes be maintained "'if two girls were not born for every boy? "'Would you ignore the very alphabet of nature?' "'He ceased, speechless for fury, "'and some time elapsed before I could induce him to resume his narrative.' You will not, of course, suppose that every bachelor among us finds his mates at the first wooing in this universal marriage chorus. On the contrary, the process is by most of us many times repeated. 
few are the hearts whose happy lot it is at once to recognise in each other's voices the partner intended for them by providence and to fly into a reciprocal and perfectly harmonious embrace with most of us the courtship is of long duration the wooers voices may perhaps accord with one of the future wives but not with both or not at first with either or the soprano and contralto may not quite harmonise in such cases nature has provided that every weekly chorus shall bring the three lovers into closer harmony each trial of voice each fresh discovery of discord almost imperceptibly induces the less perfect to modify his or her vocal utterance so as to approximate to the more perfect and after many trials and many approximations the result is at last achieved there comes a day at last when while the wonted marriage chorus goes forth from universal lineland the three far-off lovers suddenly find themselves in exact harmony and before they are aware the wedded triplet is rapt vocally into a duplicate embrace and nature rejoices over one more marriage and over three more births section fourteen how i vainly tried to explain the nature of flatland thinking that it was time to bring down the monarch from his raptures to the level of common sense i determined to endeavour to open up to him some glimpses of the truth that is to say of the nature of things in flatland so i began thus how does your royal highness distinguish the shapes and positions of his subjects i for my part noticed by the sense of sight before i entered your kingdom that some of your people are lines and others points and that some of the lines are larger you speak of an impossibility interrupted the king you must have seen a vision for to detect the difference between a line and a point by the sense of sight is as every one knows in the nature of things impossible but it can be detected by the sense of hearing and by the same means my shape can be exactly ascertained behold me i am a line the longest in lineland over six inches of space of length i ventured to suggest fool said he space is length interrupt me again and i have done i apologised but he continued scornfully since you are impervious to argument you shall hear with your ears how by means of my two voices i reveal my shape to my wives who are at this moment six thousand miles seventy yards two feet eight inches away the one to the north the other to the south listen i call to them he chirruped and then complacently continued my wives at this moment receiving the sound of one of my voices closely followed by the other and perceiving that the latter reaches them after an interval in which sound can traverse six point four five seven inches infer that one of my mouths is six point four five seven inches further from them than the other and accordingly know my shape to be six point four five seven inches but you will of course understand that my wives do not make this calculation every time they hear my two voices 
they made it once for all before we were married. But they could make it at any time, and in the same way I can estimate the shape of any of my male subjects by the sense of sound. But how, said I, if a man feigns a woman's voice with one of his two voices, or so disguises his southern voice that it cannot be recognised as the echo of the northern, may not such deceptions cause great inconvenience? And have you no means of checking frauds of this kind by commanding your neighbouring subjects to feel one another? This, of course, was a very stupid question, for feeling could not have answered the purpose, but I asked with the view of irritating the monarch, and I succeeded perfectly. What? cried he in horror. Explain your meaning. Feel, touch, come into contact. I replied. If you mean by feeling, said the king, approaching so close as to leave no space between two individuals, know, stranger, that this offence is punishable in my dominions by death, and the reason is obvious. The frail form of a woman, being liable to be shattered by such an approximation, must be preserved by the state. But since women cannot be distinguished by the sense of sight from man, the law ordains universally that neither man nor woman shall be approached so closely as to destroy the interval between the approximator and the approximated. And indeed what possible purpose would be served by this illegal and unnatural excess of approximation which you call touching? when all the ends of so brutal and coarse a process are attained at once more easily and more exactly by the sense of hearing. As to your suggested danger of deception, it is non-existent, for the voice, being the essence of one's being, cannot be thus changed at will. But come, suppose that I had the power of passing through solid things, so that I could penetrate my subjects one after another, even to the number of a billion, verifying the size and distance of each by the sense of feeling, how much time and energy would be wasted in this clumsy and inaccurate method? Whereas now, in one moment of audition, I take, as it were, the census and statistics, local, corporal, mental, and spiritual, of every living being in Lineland. Hark! Only hark! So saying, he paused and listened, as if in an ecstasy, to a sound which seemed to me no better than a tiny chirping from an innumerable multitude of Lilliputian grasshoppers. "'Truly,' replied I, "'your sense of hearing serves you in good stead, and fills up many of your deficiencies. But permit me to point out that your life in Lineland must be deplorably dull to see nothing but a point, not even to be able to contemplate a straight line, nay, not even to know what a straight line is, to see, yet to be cut off from those linear prospects which are vouchsafed to us in Flatland. Better, surely, to have no sense of sight at all than to see so little. I grant you I have not your discriminative faculty of hearing, 
for the concert of all Lineland which gives you such intense pleasure, is to me no better than a multitudinous twittering or chirping. But at least I can discern by sight a line from a point. And let me prove it. Just before I came into your kingdom, I saw you dancing from left to right, and then from right to left, with seven men and a woman in your immediate proximity on the left, and eight men and two women on your right. Is not this correct? It is correct, said the king, so far as the numbers and sexes are concerned, though I know not what you mean by right and left. But I deny that you saw these things. For how could you see the line, that is to say, the inside, of any man? But you must have heard these things, and then dreamed that you saw them. And let me ask what you mean by those words left and right. I suppose it is your way of saying northward and southward. Not so, replied I. Besides your motion of northward and southward, there is another motion which I call from right to left. King, exhibit to me, if you please, this motion from left to right. I, nay, that I cannot do, unless you could step out of your line altogether. King, out of my line? Do you mean out of the world? Out of space? I, well, yes, out of your world, out of your space. For your space is not the true space. True space is a plane but your space is only a line. King, if you cannot indicate this motion from left to right by yourself moving in it, then I beg you to describe it to me in words. I, if you cannot tell your right side from my left, I fear that no words of mine can make my meaning clear to you, but surely you cannot be ignorant of so simple a distinction. King, I do not in the least understand you. I. Alas, how shall I make it clear? When you move straight on, does it not sometimes occur to you that you could move in some other way, turning your eye round so as to look in the direction to which your side is now fronting? In other words, instead of always moving in the direction of one of your extremities, do you never feel a desire to move in the direction, so to speak, of your side? King. Never! And what do you mean? How can a man's inside front in any direction? Or how can a man move in the direction of his inside? I. Well, then, since words cannot explain the matter, I will try deeds and will move gradually out of Lineland in the direction which I desire to indicate to you. Reader's Note The following paragraph makes reference to a diagram. The diagram shows a horizontal line. At the left is marked Lineland, with an arrow pointing rightward. At the right, on the line, is a broad dash labelled the King. In the centre, on the line, is a horizontally shaded square, over which is written, My body, just before I disappeared. End of reader's note. At the word, I began to move my body out of Lineland. As long as any part of me remained in his dominion and in his view, the king kept exclaiming, I see you, I see you still, you are not moving. 
but when I had at last moved myself out of his line, he cried in his shrillest voice, "'She is vanished! She is dead!' "'I am not dead,' replied I. "'I am simply out of lineland, that is to say, out of the straight line which you call space, and in the true space where I can see things as they are. And at this moment I can see your line, or side, or inside, as you are pleased to call it, and I can also see the men and women on the north and south of you, whom I will now enumerate, describing their order, their size, and the interval between each. When I had done this at great length, I cried triumphantly, "'Does this at last convince you?' And with that I once more entered Lineland, taking up the same position as before. But the monarch replied, "'If you were a man of sense, though, as you appear to have only one voice, I have little doubt you are not a man but a woman, but if you had a particle of sense, you would listen to reason.' You ask me to believe that there is another line besides that which my senses indicate, and another motion besides that of which I am daily conscious. I, in return, ask you to describe in words, or indicate by motion, that other line of which you speak. Instead of moving, you merely exercise some magic art of vanishing and returning to sight and instead of any lucid description of your new world, you simply tell me the numbers and sizes of some forty of my retinue, facts known to any child in my capital. Can anything be more irrational or audacious? Acknowledge your folly, or depart from my dominions. Furious at his perversity, and especially indignant that he professed to be ignorant of my sex, I retorted in no measured terms, besotted being you think yourself the perfection of existence while you are in reality the most imperfect and imbecile you profess to see whereas you can see nothing but a point you plume yourself on inferring the existence of a straight line but i can see straight lines and infer the existence of angles triangles squares pentagons hexagons and even circles why waste more words? Suffice it that I am the completion of your incomplete self. You are a line, but I am a line of lines, called in my country a square. And even I, infinitely superior though I am to you, am of little account among the great nobles of Flatland, whence I have come to visit you, in the hope of enlightening your ignorance. Hearing these words, the king advanced towards me with a menacing cry, as if to pierce me through the diagonal, and in that same moment there arose from myriads of his subjects a multitudinous war-cry, increasing in vehemence, till at last methought it rivalled the roar of an army of a hundred thousand isosceles, and the artillery of a thousand pentagons. Spellbound and motionless, I could neither speak nor move to avert the impending destruction and still the noise grew louder, and the king came closer, when I awoke to find the breakfast-bell recalling me to the realities of Flatland. End of section 14 Recording by Ruth Golding